0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Young Richard Kim, who is Associate Professor and Head of Classics and Mediterranean Studies with an additional appointment in the Department of History at the University of Illinois Chicago. Young has edited a new volume with Cambridge University Press in the fantastic Cambridge Companion series. It's titled The Cambridge Companion to the Council of Nicaea, published in January of 2021. Young, congratulations on the book, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's great to have you here, and Young, I'm really looking forward to discussing this this new book with you. Uh, Before we do that, though, can you share with our listeners a little more about your background and what you've worked on in the past?
1: Yeah, um... You know, my editing this volume actually is a result of uh, much of the work that I did in the earlier part of my career. So uh, both as a graduate student and and really for the first 10 years or so of my professional life, um, I wrote a lot and read a lot about um, Epiphanius of Cyprus, who was um, kind of the lead bishop of the island um, from 367 until his death in 403. And um, Epiphanius was famous for, um, first and foremost, for for being a defender of what he understood to be orthodoxy or orthodox Christianity. Um, And in this case, he was also staunchly pro-Nicene, and and we can talk about what that means in a second. But um, he was also well-known for being a kind of heresy hunter, Um, So Epiphanius wrote a very large treatise uh, called the Panarion, which describes um, the beliefs, practices, and uh, refutations for 80 different heresies. And of course, included among those 80 heresies were the various offshoots of the, the thinking and the teaching of, of Arius, um, w- again, who, who we'll, whom we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and so um, because I had spent so much time uh, thinking about this person and his ideas, um, the opportunity arose for me to kind of go back a little bit earlier. Uh, Epiphanius was certainly alive when the Council of Nicaea took place, but he would have been very young at the time. Um, But it's really kind of the the council and then the aftermath that uh, overlaps exactly with um, the life of this figure that I studied. And so the chance to to look at the Council of Nicaea, um, sort of looking backwards, but also looking forwards from the moment of the event itself, um, that was something really exciting for me. And that's how I ended up um, becoming the editor of this volume.
0: Very good. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, this, this book, the, the Cambridge Companion to the Council of Nicaea, it's really well put together. Uh, you have a diverse set of contributors. Um, why don't we begin by just having you introduce us to the Council of Nicaea? There have there've been generally two different perspectives on it that you mentioned in the, in the introduction. It's been the subject of, of just a ton of literature over the years. Where does this book fit in?
1: Yeah, great question. Um so, so one of the fascinating things about the Council of Nicaea is that it's, you know, arguably one of the most important moments in the history of Christianity. It's, a, you know, what we call like a watershed moment or a turning point or, you know, whatever uh, descriptor we want to use. Um, but at the same time, it's also one that is um, really contested at every turn. You know, so the chronology is contested. The sources uh, are are few, but then they're also contested. The origins of the, the debate that led to the council, um, the different players involved in the lead up to and during and after the council. But pretty much everything about the Council of Nicaea has a different sort of interpretive angle by scholars over you know, really, over the centuries, um, and so i 'm um, really fascinated then by this this moment that is uh, as I say in the introduction, you know most Christians around the world you know at least know in part something about the Council of Nicaea because um, most Christians around the world on Sunday recite um, what they understand to be the creed. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the modern vocabulary of, of Christianity, the, the Council of Nicaea or the Nicene Creed is, is, is there. And, um, and yet it is this event that is um, really so debated. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways, that's what is also Um, quite fascinating and, and, and really fun for, for those of us who kind of engage in this period is that, um, because we have this limited set of sources for this event, um, we can have these kind of radically different perspectives. Now, the, the, the point of view that I present in my introduction to the volume is, um, uh, the starting point actually is with this um, novel by Dan Brown. I, I'm sure many of uh, our listeners will, will know The Da Vinci Code. And, and of course, there was a, a Hollywood film that was made uh, uh, an adaptation of that novel um, directed by Ron Howard. And so in that um, novel and in the, the movie, the you know, one of the, the characters, uh, this kind of crotchety old man um, who knows all about uh, history and conspiracies and this, and this kinds of things, and I won't give away the plot if you don't know about it, but you know he basically presents the Council of Nicaea as this conspiratorial moment where um, the Emperor Constantine, you know, the first Christian emperor, um, essentially. Made the decision, or forced people to agree with his decision, that Jesus Christ um, would now henceforth be understood and believed to be the Son of God, divine. Um, and so, uh, as a result, then any points of view that uh, go against him—I'm uh, sorry—to go against the idea that Jesus is divine would be considered heretical. And then any books or writings that um, would would say anything other than Jesus is divine would be would be condemned, right? And so then uh, this fits into the plot line of, of, of Brown's novel for, for a variety of reasons relating to um, the Holy Grail, but I won't get into that. Um, but, but that's kind of one extreme polar end, you know, that this council decided Jesus was God and then that was a kind of uh conspiracy or power play or however you want to present it. And then of course the other the other point of view is that um you know this is a moment when the you know and this is a uh, something that's disputed as well but this is a moment when the doctrine of the trinity you know the belief that the divine godhead or god um you know exists is one god but exists in as three Persons that um, you know, people will say this, and this is probably something that I even learned. You know, when I was going to church growing up, is that you know the doctrine of the Trinity was um, defended here at the Council of Nicaea um, against uh, against heresy. Uh, so it's these kind of two extremes: conspiracy. And, uh, um, and defense of the faith uh, that, that lie at those two ends. And really, you know, the work of historians and scholars who study the Council of Nicaea, it's really the in-between spaces where a lot of our debates happen. And that's where it, it's kind of messy, too, because just um, are, you know, there's a limit of sources and a limit of, of what we can draw from them. And so hence we have these ongoing debates even to this day about the council.
0: Yeah, that's a great introduction, and really, <laughs> really helps help helps frame the book for us. And you know, this is a really comprehensive study that you've produced here. We've got essays on on the council itself, what came of it, its reception, also the contexts, which are so important. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, some of the social, political context and the lead up to Nicaea. Uh, maybe introduce us to, to some of the essays that, that sort of deal with that, with the complexity of, you know, these moving parts culturally, ideologically in those mm-hmm. years, 312 to you know, 3, 324.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what's really interesting too is that um, one's academic discipline, you know, sort of the lenses by which we study the past or the sources uh, that, that tell us about the past um, in a lot of ways can and does inform how we understand the council's inception and, and, and causes, right? So, um, and what I mean by this is, you know, let's say if someone's a historian, then a historian necessarily wants to look at the political, the social, the cultural, perhaps economic, whatever um, sort of circumstances that lead to this event. Uh, whereas someone who comes from a sort of theological angle, you know, really focuses in and hones in on the ideas right. And a philosopher might do that as well. Uh, someone who's in, uh, coming to this from the perspective of religious studies, um, again, may, may look at questions of not only theology, but, um, uh, ritual and liturgy and, uh, and, and perhaps even theoretical kind of explanations and causes for the council. So, so this is the, the kind of, um, the nutshell, right? Because, um, uh, The Emperor Constantine is this figure that um, looms large in this volume, and it's something that I wanted to make sure came out. Um, But uh, what's actually really interesting, and this comes out in the essay by uh, Raymond Van Damme, the the first essay after the introduction, is that um, for most of the events leading up to 325 when the council happens, Constantine actually wasn't the emperor of that side or that half of the Roman Empire. It was Licinius. Uh, And so this um, local debate, a debate that erupts in Egypt um, and uh, Rebecca Lyman's essay really captures this well, that, that uh, the reasons for why this debate or why even Arius began to teach um, you know, this idea of Jesus as a, as a creature or a creation um, this local debate um, slowly, but surely spills out into uh, the wider Eastern Mediterranean, right? And the dates for this are contested. Some scholars would say sort of in the 318 moving forward, others would say uh, in the early 320s, but whatever the case may be, there's this local argument between Arius, this uh, uh, clergyman and Alexander of Alexandria, who's the Bishop of, uh, of, of Alexandria, basically the, the head of the church in Egypt, Um, There's this theological debate then that um, leads to a letter writing campaign um, and mutual sort of condemnations and ultimately um, uh, the necessity for calling this council. But all the while, um, the Emperor Constantine, the guy who is so important to this conversation, is actually ruler of the Western half of the empire. And so it's only in um, September of 324 when he finally defeats Licinius that um, Constantine becomes the ruler of the entire empire. And in some ways he inherits then this problem that has been s- sort of simmering um, first in Egypt and then in the wider Eastern Mediterranean. Um, he inherits this theological debate and argument And that debate and argument has the potential to kind of rip the whatever unity or, or peace that Constantine has just achieved, it kind of has the the chance to rip it apart. Uh, And so then that is one of the kind of main driving forces that leads to uh, this, this event, the Council of Nicaea. Um, So, so that, that kind of um, mix of political and theological and personal um, relationships and, 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 and contests over power, these are all factors that we need to think about. And, and I haven't even really dived into the theology or the philosophical kind of uh, atmosphere. Um, and, and similarly with uh, exegetical, you know, how, how people were reading the scriptures and interpreting them, all of these factors, um, it's, I don't think it's appropriate to, to single out any one of them as uh, a way to understand why the Council of Nicaea happened, but really it's a sort of conglomeration of all of these. And, and that's one of the things that I wanted to do with this volume was to get different kind of uh, disciplinary perspectives uh, to, to, to weigh in on, on the reasons that um, the, the Council ultimately happens. Um, so hopefully that gives you some sort of contextual background, but I'm happy to answer you know, follow-up questions you might have.
0: Yeah, no, that's really helpful, and and I think it, it, it the context do come out really well there from the various authors there in that section. Um, yeah, so that that's really helpful. And if we if we now go to sort of zoom in on the event itself, um, maybe we could take David Gwyn's essay as a guide, perhaps. Uh, can you walk us through who were the participants, uh, the proceedings of the council? Uh, what all transpired at Nicaea? Yeah, and this is this
1: is where the the debate continues, right? Because um, right. so one of the major challenges we face is that um, there are no surviving um, what we call acta, you know, of the council. So um, later councils, large councils like the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon uh, in four fifty one. Uh, We have, um, uh, basically, I I would call them the proceedings or the minutes, perhaps, might be the way to describe them. But we have those... Um, um, documents that tell us about the the sequence of uh, events and discussion, or, you know, even the agenda, you can kind of reconstruct it. Uh, but for the Council of Nicaea, we, we don't have the ACTA. And so what we're left with then is um, we know some of the issues, we have some sources, particularly uh, Eusebius of Caesarea is an important one. Um, you know who who tell us about the actual event itself, but we have to uh, kind of extrapolate um, and, and sort of reconstruct what happened, who was there, how many people were there, and and these are all um, questions that that David Gwyn explores in his essay that I think is really helpful, right? So, um, so for one, you know, an important detail that I, I know you know people don't realize is that there was a kind of um, uh, there was a, a a smaller council that actually happened before Nicaea, um, three twenty four, late three twenty four, uh, perhaps early three twenty five. Um, we're not sure, but uh, and and even the the very existence of this council is actually debated. But we have a Syriac letter that tells us about it. But um, there was a council held in Antioch, um, and at this council, uh, which was um, presided by. Uh, a bishop by the name of, of Osius or Hosius of Cordova, who, who, who was essentially Constantine's um, advisor with regard to Christianity. Uh, so Hoseus um, hosted this council, uh, and this council was uh, very much in favor and support of Alexander of Alexandria. Right? So Alexander was the one who had opposed Arius's ideas. Uh, And in the proceedings of this council, which also issued a kind of belief statement, um, there were three bishops, included among them Eusebius of Caesarea, who were uh, provisionally condemned for for basically holding er erroneous beliefs. And so then when the actual Council of Nicaea itself, uh, which originally was supposed to be held in a city uh, called Ansaira, which is modern-day Ankara in Turkey... Um, the Emperor Constantine actually decided to move the the gathering from Ansyra instead to uh, Nicaea, um, and and this is these are some details that come out in the essays by uh, Ina ja- uh, Jacobs and by um, uh, Harold Drake. But um, you know Constantine's uh, decision to move the council. Um, it, it, some of the reasons that he gave was the weather's better in Nicaea. Um, access for Western, uh, clergy to come to Nicaea was easier than to make their way to Ankara. Um, and, uh, Constantine's, um, residence, the imperial residence was in a nearby city, uh, Nicomedia. And so for all of these reasons, the council of Nicaea, um, could have been the council of Ansaira, but it wasn't, it was actually Nicaea. And so, um, when Constantine called this council, um, he invited, you know, uh, all, all of the bishops in, in theory to come uh, on the imperial dime. You know, so they were actually given permission to use the imperial uh, sort of network of travel, and uh, it, uh, you know, they gathered in Nicaea. And and again, this is an, in, an important question that Ina Jacobs explores in her essay. Um, we're not exactly sure like what the space would have looked like, or if it could even accommodate how many you know people we think were there. Um, and so, the council, uh, the traditional number for the the participants is uh, 318 bishops or signatories. Um, but this is a Laura later kind of tradition that um, actually has a, a, a basis, you know. So. Um, from Genesis fourteen fourteen, there's a description of Abraham's servants, and so that perfect number of three hundred eighteen uh, kind of was appropriated in later traditions about the Council of Nicaea. And um, different sources tell us different numbers, but um, we think between let's say you know two hundred to three hundred, um, you know, bishops would have participated in the proceedings. Uh, but on top of that, you know, every one of these bishops would have had a an entourage, you know, of anywhere between three to a dozen uh, staff, clergy uh, support. And so the actual gathering at Nicaea, and this is something David DeGuinne explores too, is we could have had probably somewhere in the range of 2,000 people, um, you know, all milling about at this event. And, and what was so... Um, just monumental, and I think if I was there, if I put myself in my in 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 my bishop's shoes, there, uh, terrifying um, about this gathering is that the the emperor of the Roman world it, it, he was he was there, and and David does a great job of 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 helping us set this scene that Eusebius describes of Constantine coming into. The gathering, Um, you know, and 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 Eusebius describes him almost like an, you know, an angelic being coming in, and and Constantine sort of keeps his head and his eyes down as a as a way to to demonstrate his humility. Um, But the fact that the emperor opened the council, you know, he he's sort of the 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 master of ceremonies who got it started. Although Eusebius is, is pretty emphatic that once the proceedings began, he just um, sort of took a backseat to what, what what unfolded. But um, the fact that the emperor was there is such an important detail that is, I think, in many ways underappreciated. And, and one of the reasons why is um, not not a decade earlier, you know, a little take that back, a little over a decade before this. You know, Christians in the, particularly the eastern half of the empire, they were actually still experiencing, um, you know, active persecution. Um, so people who were at the council lived through um, the the persecutions of the early fourth century. Um and of course the the perpetrator, if we can say that, of the persecutions were was the the imperial state. And so here now the head of that state, the emperor, is at the council. And so his opening of this, I think, really marks uh a, a, a profoundly important moment and I, I would say like deeply terrifying. Now um Eusebius again emphasizes that Constantine's uh apparently his bodyguard wasn't. Uh, in in the hall where they met and so maybe that was a little less frightening but but nevertheless i think that's that's an important detail and so from that point the 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 beginning of the council uh, the dates are again argued may or june of 325 but then we have this kind of series of uh, debates um that we have like Glimpses of right, and of course, the uh, one of the first issues that had to be resolved was whether or not to seat those three bishops who had been provisionally deposed um, at uh, or condemned at the Council of Antioch. And once that's resolved, then then they kind of get into the heart of the issue. And um, and again, it, it's not exactly clear, but but one of the key players here that needs to also be allowed to participate fully is um, Eusebius of Nicomedia, right? So there are two Eusebiuses that are really important players in this, uh, in the council. Eusebius of Caesarea, who's a sort of bishop and a historian, and a, he writes a biography of Constantine. And then Eusebius of Nicomedia, who's actually a really powerful and influential bishop. Um, and he is a supporter of and a partisan on behalf of Arius, uh, and others who support Arius. And so Eusebius' presence here is then contrasted with the presence of Alexander of Alexandria and most likely Alexander's um, younger um, support staff member, um, Athanasius, who will of course later succeed him. Uh, and so, you know, the traditional perspective then is that you have these two sort of camps, you know, one side pro Arius, the other side pro Alexander, and then they have this kind of debate and an and argument over, over theology. But I think the essays in the volume two, and David's point uh, as well, David Gwynne, is that um, actually the, the two camps ideas is a way oversimplification, because um, there was a lot of fluidity and a lot of kind of uncertainty and um, um, different uh, theologians were along the kind of two polar ends and, and in, in, the, in the in-between spaces. And so really this debate is not necessarily just between two sides, but a really kind of um, uh, a bunch of different perspectives, perhaps even some uh, bishops who weren't persuaded one way or the other, maybe even some who came with an open mind uh, and were really intently listening in on the, the the arguments that were presented. But whatever the case may be, the proceedings, um, you know, are obviously contentious, um, but they're eventually resolved by the promulgation of a creed. Um, which we can talk about um, some uh, anathemas or condemnations that accompany that creed. Uh, And then there's some depositions, including Arius. Arius is deposed and and sent into exile. And so um, there's this um, month long um, council debate. And there are other issues too, that come up Uh, the date of Easter and how to calculate it. Um, There are canons. Um, So, so these uh, sort of, um, proclamations by the council for various um, uh, issues relating to the church. Um, And so, you know, among these are, you know, uh, there are, uh, there were some other issues, uh, including a schism in Egypt, but all this to say um, we have to uh, kind of reconstruct as best we can what we know of the proceedings, but I can tell you that they were messy. And maybe that's the last thing I will leave you with.
0: Well, Young, you mentioned the creed, and and I want to get to to the outcomes of of the Council of Nicaea. Mm. What we think of immediately, a, a lot of readers do is is the Nicene Creed. How did the production of this one compare to the production of other creeds? Yeah, and um, can you speak to how uh, how it was received? Uh, right there off the bat, or uh, how, what was its um, immediate reception?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we, we know, of course, that um, churches before the Council of Nicaea um, had creeds, or, or, or what we might perhaps say in a, in a less formal way, um, you know, professions or, or statements of faith. Uh, and in particular, you know, we know that um, churches in various cities in the empire um, had these statements that would be recited at the time an individual was baptized into the church, right? So, so baptismal creeds or baptismal statements, or um, you know, uh, statements like this, used in a liturgical function setting, um, we know those those were around. Um, and then, you know, there there was there there had been up to this point a growing tradition. Uh, among you know some of the the, the important sort of Christian writers uh, of the early church, who in their own respective works were putting together what what roughly might be described as as um, creeds or statements that that articulate some theological perspective. So someone like Irenaeus uh, of Lyon, for example, you know in his writings, you know he he speaks of uh, a rule of faith a canon of faith or uh, you know and, and this might be more of a principle but nevertheless even in his writings he he offers some um, statements um, that profess what what christians uh, orthodox or correct you know correctly believing christians might believe and and, and some scholars even think that even in the new testament um, that we might see um, some kind of you know creedal statements so uh, the 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 famous sort of kenosis um, statement of Philippians two for example would be would be one example of that. So um, creeds aren't uh, unfamiliar to to people, but um, at the Council of Nicaea, what what's really quite interesting is that um, um, Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that in order for him to uh, be seated uh, because he had been provisionally condemned, he produced. Um The baptismal creed of his city of Caesarea, um, which uh, upon analysis, at least according to his point of view, was deemed to be acceptable and and, and in fact, Eusebius seems to insinuate that um, the the Creed of Caesarea was kind of the 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 basis for the what what would become the the Nicene Creed, although Mark Edwards in his essay, uh, I think uh, complicates that and challenges that, and so what seems to have happened is um uh, there 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 seems to have been a kind of uh committee or commission that um sat down and and composed put together the the creed and one of the most important and uh ultimately contentious points of this creed was the insertion of this uh word. Uh, homousios, okay. and I, I know some of our listeners will will know this word because you know if anyone who's taken a church history course knows, homousios is this word that we translate into English as roughly something like a "consubstantial" or um, "the same substance." Um, and so there are sort of endless debates about who introduced this word, homousios. Um, Eusebius even says that Constantine um, um, suggested this. Um, Other scholars have sort of looked at Hoseus of Cordova uh, or Alexander of Alexandria. Um, But what's interesting is that this term that was used to describe the relationship between the father and the son as being uh, of the same substance, um, the term itself was actually... um, Condemned or, or at least uh, uh, rejected in the previous century um, over a different theological debate. But whatever the case may be, um, this committee or this small group of theologians at the Council of Nicaea decided that homoousios would be this word that helps to resolve this debate, right? And the debate is what is the relationship between the father and the son? And ultimately, for Arius, um, it seems that um, you know again, Arius isn't saying that Jesus doesn't have this you know divineness about him, but but that nevertheless, that the Arius seems to have argued that that Jesus um, came to be; he he, he was created, uh, and in in that way, then he has a beginning point, right? Um, whereas if the, on the other side of this debate or, uh, you know, um, to, to use that kind of binary, which I'm, I earlier said we shouldn't. But nevertheless, you know, this, this, um, the, the other side of the, the perspective would say, if, if we acknowledge that Jesus is of the same substance of God and God is eternal, unchanging, um, then the implication is the same for the Son. Right, so then that then you would affirm the eternal uh, eternality of the Son, that He's not a created being, right, and and begottenness will become this descriptor to to help explain that, or if we're more specific, an eternal begottenness. But that that's a, a debate for a later time. But uh, all this to say, you know, Homoousius was presented as this word that would then um, resolve this debate, and Constantine seems to have been happy about. It. Now, one of the problems with homoousios, when you say substance, right, even in English, uh, the the word in Greek is ousia, but in in English, the word substance implies, like, stuff that you can touch, right, something material. So I could, I I don't know, think of, like... um, Um, Like silly putty, you know, that's a a substance that I can kind of mold and and shape in a way that I want. And so if you introduce the language of substance, when you talk about God, for some theologians, that was a real problem, because then it seemed to suggest that God is material. Right, and if God is material, then the question is: Well, who made that material? Where did that material come from? And that's obviously something you can't say about um, God. You know, in this case, we'll say God the Father. Um, you know, whereas you might be able to say that about um, the Son, but nevertheless, Homoousius becomes this this really contested terminology. Um, but um, almost everyone signs on to the creed, even Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, But what's really interesting is that Eusebius (laughs) sort of immediately afterward, you know, writes a letter that that we have that he wrote back to his home congregation in which he uh, explains his particular understanding of of homoousios, right? And in a way that uh, still affirms the sort of um, theology that he uh, espoused, and and didn't um, fully agree with let's say the perspective presented by Alexander of Alexandria. So all this to say, then um, the Nicene Creed, which you know we recite, uh, you know Christians recite a form of it in their churches today. It's actually an adaptation of this uh, of the Nicene Creed. But um, Homoousios, this idea of consubstantial, for you know this earlier, I talked about that kind of uh, one polar end of the perspective that this was a defense of the faith. Christians now, you know, would say homoousios, you know, clearly affirmed the, the the divinity, the correlative divinity of Jesus, the son relative to the father in in relation to the father. And whereas in actuality, and this is the follow up to your the second half of your question is that um, essentially, once the council was over, the Council of Nicaea itself, as well as the creed, um, they were almost immediately kind of set aside um, and in some ways uh, ignored um and and really what the Council of Nicaea did and its creed, rather than firmly establishing and articulating and clearly stating. You know what was to be the orthodox belief about the relationship between the father and the son, actually catalyzed decades of debate. <laughs> and, and and what actually unfolds, and and you know, um, people can read this by uh, these these events and in the works of other scholars, um, you know, Richard Hanson, Lewis Ayers, John Bear, uh, et cetera. Um, essentially, the debate just. Rages And so the Council of Nicaea and its creed were, in fact, um, kind of the sparks that lit this flame that led to um, dozens of councils. Uh, it seems like, you know, the mid-300s, uh, the mid-4th century, was the era of sort of nonstop councils. And many of these councils were also issuing um, new creeds. Right, So there are a bunch of creeds that come out of this time as well. And, and each council, depending on who was hosting it and, and who d- dominated the proceedings, each of those creeds then reflected the particular theological view of the participants. So, so really, um, the aftermath... Um, if, if the proceedings were messy, Zach, then the aftermath was even messier. <laughs> uh, and that, and again, that's what's so fascinating about this, is that this watershed moment, this moment that for a lot of Christians was the defining moment that Jesus was affirmed as divine, was in fact um, the opposite. It became just uh, the, the, the spark that, 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 that initiated this huge conflagration of, of debate for the next several decades.
0: Yeah, that's really good. And I, w- I want to follow up on on reception in that in the aftermath, um, because part four of the book, um, it, it it deals with the aftermath up until that that fourth century um, or to the end of the fourth century, rather. Um, and you see f- figures come up in in some of those essays, Athanasius, the Cappadocian Fathers, Hilary, Augustine. Mm. Um can you talk to us about how some of these figures, um, how they were able to appropriate uh, the Trinitarian ideas that came up in Nicaea into their various theological strands?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question, and 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 the essays in this section I think are are, are really interesting too because it, it shows the extent to which um, this conflagration that I mentioned was was raging on, um, but at the same time. Um, there is a slow, I think, a slow and steady move toward um, a, a, what we might call a consensus. You know, and and this is um, Mark Del Coliano's essay is really helpful because he demonstrates how um, the 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 role of the the Cappadocian Fathers, in particular uh, Basil of Caesarea, and Gregory of Nazianzus, but of course Gregory of Nyssa too, but how. Um, the, the work of these theologians, um, was a series of, uh, of, of moments where they're, they're kind of refining and honing and, 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 and carefully articulating, um, different points of debate to come to, you know, a consensus understanding of, um, not only the relationship between the father and the son, but, and this is something I haven't mentioned at all, and again, might be a surprise to some of our listeners, but um, the Holy Spirit hasn't even really been a part of this conversation um, up to this point, you know? And so even though we often say that the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed affirms the doctrine of the Trinity, um, in fact, what it did was actually open the debate about the divinity, right? The relationship between the father and the son. And it's only a little bit later, and in particular, Athanasius of Alexandria picks up this conversation and debate about the Holy Spirit, where um, the, the the Spirit's place in this divine Godhead is um, becomes part of the larger conversation, 350s moving forward. Um, So uh, the Cappadocian Fathers are helpful in building a consensus, and in in particular, um, and again, this is some of the technical kind of nitty-gritty of this, but one of the issues that uh, was constantly debated was... um, the difference between two theological terminologies. One is the word usia, which I mentioned earlier, the word that we translate as, as substance. And then the other word that was part of this that became sort of uh, debated was um, hypostasis. Right? And hypostasis is a again a complicated uh, uh, legacy uh, ter- term, but um, it, it can be an existence, a, uh, a being, or a person. And so for prior to the Council of Nicaea, and then even in the aftermath, many theologians actually um, used those terms interchangeably. One hypostasis, one usia, in fact, became a kind of theological point. Um, And so one of the things that um, the Cappadocians did that was important was, um, and there were other theologians who were doing this as well, but um, they made a clear distinction between the word substance, and then the word person. Um, So there were some theologians who argued that God is one hypostasis, right? Only. Uh, And they used that interchangeably then with the word one substance, uh, one usia. But by making this subtle but important distinction between usia and hypostasis, Then, ultimately, um, what happened was the the Cappadocian Fathers, and with Athanasius contributing to this as well, is that they could um, articulate the Godhead as one usia, one substance, kind of affirming the divinity of all of the Godhead, but identifying three distinct hypostases, right? Uh, uh, um, uh, Three persons uh, and so, by making this distinction, then, and, and Trinitarian theology is is you know complicated and can make your head spin, but by making this careful distinction, what what was part of this consensus building movement is that then you could um, have this doctrine or this belief that affirms, on the one hand, the singular unity and divinity of God. Um, but on the other hand, it could also affirm the distinct persons in this this Godhead that share this one usia, and so that was that was kind of the one of the major uh, points that lead us to, you know, the next ecumenical council, so to speak, the Council of Constantinople in three eighty one. Um, but this is a debate that rages for decades, right? And and there are different. Uh, ideas and different um, um, uh, perspectives offered all along the way, you know. And some of your listeners might, for example, be familiar with the term homoiousios with that yoda in there, right? And homoiousios is a term that means, you know, something like um, a similar substance, so not the same substance, homoousios, but similar homoiousios, and uh. And in fact, um, Athanasius seems to have um, thought that there's a way to actually accommodate homoousios, and he tried with uh, a faction of theologians who supported this idea. He tried to build a um, a kind of uh, alliance um, with them that that ultimately didn't work out. Um, but you know, these are fine points of difference that um, different theologians were were arguing, and of course, some of the more extreme ones. Um, one perspective said let 's get rid of Uzia language altogether let 's ignore it completely because it doesn 't appear in scripture in reference to God. So one perspective said let 's not have Uzia at all <laughs> let 's just stop talking about that and then another point of view said um, another one said, in fact, the father and the son are are different substances right Uh, As a way to really um, demonstrate a separation between the two. So all this to say that in the aftermath, um, these various theologians who are arguing about these perspectives, um, you know, there, there are these constant shifts and innovations and refinements. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm not even really mentioning sort of the political dimension of this, but so much of this also had to do with relationships, right. And networks, uh, and, and ultimately power too. like people who were in positions of power had the voice that was, uh, heard and louder. And, you know, um, one could argue that someone like Athanasius, even though he himself was exiled. You know, five different times. You know, he's one of these very, very powerful voices because he was the the Archbishop or the Bishop of of Alexandria. Um, so, so I hope that again um, shows just how messy things are. But amid the messiness, there is a move toward what we might call consensus.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, young, if we if we move then to look at at the long reception, yeah. because there's been a number of years that have gone by even from those uh, sections we were just talking about at the end of the fourth century and this final section of the book it deals with the long reception looking at these two distinct traditions those are the the Eastern churches and then the West as well um, there's essays that cover just a lot of a lot of material and um and kind of show N- Nicaea as, as you've said earlier on as, as kind of a reference point for later councils and issues. Mm. Um, but I, w- I want to ask specifically about Jeffrey Dunn's essay where he talks about um, modern receptions or a modern Catholic reception of Nicaea. Uh, can you share with us just briefly as we're wrapping up here? Yeah. Uh, what, what Dunn contributes?
1: Yeah. I'll say that long reception section is, uh, is, is again a really interesting one. And, and um. You know, full disclosure: I had originally commissioned an essay to also talk about um, Protestant receptions of uh, Nicaea. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, that that essay fell through. And so, what we're left with are two very fine essays about the uh, Orthodox and then the Catholic reception. And so, Jeff Jeffrey Dunn's essay uh, he talks about um, the, the the Catholic reception, and 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 I think what really comes out from his essay. Um, you know, by the time we reach even the fifth century, um, the count—and this is early—but the fifth century, where a new debate is kind of raging, and that's the sort of—you know—it's a stereotype to say so, but the fifth century is the debate about Christology, right—the the, the incarnation of Christ. But uh, and, and, and by the way, um, um, Mark Smith has a great book on the the function of uh, the, the use of the Council of Nicaea in the fifth century councils. Um, you know, so by the fifth century, the Council of Nicaea is is almost a um, uh, like a sine qua non. Like basically, it's it's a foundation point of theolo- theology, right? By this point, um, partly because of imperial intervention, you know, theologians across the empire accept and acknowledge the Council of Nicaea and its creed as Orthodoxy—it's a given, right? And if you if you deny that, then you're you're not a Christian. And so, um, and, and and then you know this is also sort of when we introduce this concept of a, of a ecumenical council, right? That that all of the universal church acknowledges the Council of Nicaea as the first ecumenical council. And so, in the Catholic tradition, you know Jeff Jeff shows that. Um, you know, Nicaea is uh, kind of a, 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 a signpost, a mile marker, a, a, a point of the history of the church that is um, kind of like what I alluded to earlier, this, 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 this uh, point that is um, uh, a watershed moment, uh, a no compromise, you know, once the doctrine of uh, the, the Trinity, so to speak, is affirmed. Uh, according to tradition, by the Council of Nicaea, then moving forward, the Council of Nicaea is kind of the the, the foundational point uh, for all other conciliar gatherings, right? And so what's interesting then is that, um, and this is tied to a lot of historical developments, but as the East and the West, their destinies are moving in different directions, um, you know, the Orthodox Church acknowledges the sort of first seven councils as ecumenical councils shared by the churches and then as each side has their own particular um, trajectories the the Western Church and what eventually we might call the Roman Catholic Church they have um, many other councils that they uh, that the church acknowledges and recognizes as, you know, authoritative or what we might call ecumenical, and so you know, the the East and West have these kind of diverging trajectories. Um, and it, it's, sure, it has to do with theology and liturgy and and ecclesiology, but it also has to do with um, you know empires and politics and power and this kind of thing. Um, but but we're moving in different directions. Um, what I think is really helpful in in again Jeffrey's essay is. He also shows the extent to which the canons of Nicaea, and I know we didn't have time to talk about these very much, but the canons also become very, very important um, uh, signal posts, uh, markers of um, proper practice. And so even as the Catholic Church has this really rich and sophisticated development of canon law, and this is something that does come out in Andreas Weckvert's essay about the canons, but, you know, canon law and, and, you know, sort of the rules that govern the church and, and its life and, and the life of its, its members, um, the, the council of Nicaea and its canons, the the, the echoes and the traces of the, the council last, you know, until the very, this very day, you know, and then in that way, I think Jeffrey really shows how, you know, the legacy of this historical event is uh, has lasting implications. Um, and 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 you know maybe this is the best way to close this um, conversation um, uh, is that, uh, as I mentioned, you know, as Christians around the world recite this creed uh, every Sunday. You know that shows this this incredibly long-lasting legacy of this event, even if the the memory of it is, is is fuzzy for a lot of people. And then, of course, the actual events themselves are deeply contested. But nevertheless, I don't think there's any denying that the Council of Nicaea and its creed um, have this lasting um, impact to to our very day.
0: That's really well said there. Appreciate that. Yeah. And Young, you've been really gracious with your time. Uh, we want to let you go, but real quick before we do that, uh, can you share with our listeners, uh, what you plan to work on next?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> as I mentioned, I, I spent a lot of my career working on this Bishop Epiphanius of Cyprus, Epiphanius, right. and, uh, and in some ways, um, I feel like my relationship with him has gone on long enough, and so I'm trying to move on to other projects. Um, and so, you know, I'm actually working. I, I'm I'm actually trained uh, trained as an ancient historian, so my expertise is really is is in is in late antique history. And so I'm writing a book now on um, the island of Cyprus. So there's still a connection because Epiphanius was the, um, you know, the, the lead bishop of Cyprus. But but um, I'm I'm really interested in the the history of this island. Uh, I think particularly from the fourth through the seventh centuries. Um, and of course, the history of Christianity and, and in particular, hagiography hey, is very much a part of. Uh, understanding Cyprus in this period, but, um, but that's my, my current project. Um, so very different than Epiphanios and certainly different from the council of Nicaea, but um, you know, there, there are obviously going to be points of intersection as well.
0: Great. Well, we'll be sure to look out for future work from you. It'd, it'd be great to have you back on the show, but uh, for now, thanks for editing this volume yep. uh, with, with, with Cambridge. Uh, it's called the Cambridge companion to the Council of Nicaea. It was published January 2021. Young, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Zach, it was a pleasure, and I thank you for your really poignant and thoughtful questions.
0: Great, And, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.